Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Phil at the Movies. I'm your host, Phil Walsh, and you're listening to episode number 61 of this ongoing podcast series that is for the love of movies. I want to thank you, as always, for tuning in each week and hearing what I have to say on movies and cinema. I know I, I say this at the start of every show, but uh, it certainly bears repeating, right? At least I think it bears repeating. Thank you for, for being a part of this cinematic journey. Thank you for tuning in each week. Thank you for your encouragement, your feedback, your support, and most importantly, your friendship. I, I, I mean it. I consider everyone a friend to fill at the movies, and uh, this has just been an enjoyable and rewarding cinematic journey, shall we say, from the beginning of January 2022 through the present day. And uh going to keep going uh, as long as uh, my voice will let me, or as long as there are, are movies to talk about. Uh, fortunately, there's plenty of, plenty of cinema still left to uh, tackle, but... Uh, in all seriousness, though, just thank you, thank you, thank you for for being a part of this, uh, being a part of this show, being a part of this community, and and for your friendship. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Now, before I put today's topic on the chopping block, so to speak, do a little bit of a housekeeping at the start of today's show. So first off, uh, as many of you may know, I co-host. Another podcast uh, with my two friends, Anthony Caruso and Chris Evans, and the show is called DC Unlimited. We try to drop new episodes every two weeks, and the, the premise is we are covering all things DC-related, from movies, TV shows, comics, you name it. And certainly this is a, an exciting time if you are a fan of the DC brand and certainly of the comic book genre. Next week is, of course, the long-anticipated release of The Flash movie. And uh, you've probably heard me say it a few times on this show in the past. I am very excited to see the return of one of my favorite actors to ever don the uh, cape and cowl. Michael Keaton is coming back as Batman. So uh, I will certainly have things to say after I see the the movie i'm right now scheduled to go see it next monday night they're doing a kind of a fans only event uh, it's locations around the country and i've uh, i've secured my my tickets for an imax screening so next uh, next monday 10 o'clock 10 o'clock at night i will uh god willing be seeing the flash and uh, i'm very excited so you know, it at this recording, it's four days and counting. So uh, I will certainly be uh, you know, giving you my feedback and, and, and thoughts on that in the coming weeks. But uh, on that subject of, of DC and, and all things uh, you know, DC movie-related, uh, my, my friends and I, uh, Anthony and, and Chris, we've done another episode which should be dropping uh, either this week or next week, but I, I believe it'll be this week, where we are reviewing the the much discussed uh, much uh, debated and and frankly celebrated film Zack Snyder's Justice League and uh, if you are a, a fan of, of of the genre and certainly of the film I would encourage you to check out this episode as uh, well as uh, give our give our show a follow uh, look for our uh, look for our bat signal if uh, if you will but uh, again I will leave all that information in the show notes. 
Uh, in addition to that, as I sort of alluded to, the summer movie season is really beginning in earnest next week. I mean, there have been a lot of uh, certainly celebrated films that have come out in the last few weeks from Guardians of the Galaxy and uh, Across the Spider-Verse, which... As of this recording, I have yet to go see, but uh, I'm hoping to, to catch a screening this uh, this weekend. But uh, I planned to go last week, but life life had other plans uh, for me, so it was not in the cards. But uh, hoping to, to catch a, a screening of it this weekend. Uh, so those two movies, they are comic book related and definitely are, are part of the, the summer blockbuster discussion, if you will. But uh, in the next few weeks, beginning with The Flash, soon after Indiana Jones, and then once we get to July, we've got Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, we've got the Barbie movie coming out. So I mean, it, there's going to be a lot of uh, interesting uh, discussions and, uh, and, and debates and reactions over these, uh, these films, these big tentpole movies, big summer movies. Uh, and it really feels like uh, we're sort of returning to a bygone era in a lot of ways. Um, a lot of times in, in recent years, it feels like a lot of the, the bigger movies that normally would have been released in, say, the summer months are now seeing falls, early spring, or, or in other cases, holiday uh, and, and winter releases. But uh, it, it is exciting, uh, especially as a movie buff, to uh, look ahead at the calendar and just see what is coming out over the next few weeks. So it's going to be a very, uh, very exciting uh, movie season. I'm looking forward to tackling and, and discussing as many of these movies as uh, as possible. And uh, it, I give you my word, it won't just uh, won't just be me uh, delivering passionate monologues or uh, solo reactions. I can promise you there will be discussions and uh, interactions uh, with a. Uh, uh, other, others as well. So uh, stay tuned for that. I am also uh, toying with uh, doing another poll in, uh, the couple, in a couple weeks for uh, a future commentary at the movies episode. So definitely uh, be on the lookout for that. And I will uh, you know, certainly give a, a heads up beforehand. But uh, that pretty much I think sets the stage um, for, uh, for housekeeping, if you will. Again, I'll leave all of the uh, uh, the uh, Social media handles and the show notes. If you'd like to uh, give a give a follow on uh, on Twitter and the like, but uh, all right, I think uh, without any further ado, let me uh, let me conclude today what began now three weeks ago with my my mini series, if you will, discussions on movie sequels. So started this. This little uh, mini season, mini series off with Jaws two, which, uh, as uh, you may remember, I think is a fine film. Uh, definitely a, 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 a an interesting follow up to Jaws, but certainly doesn't doesn't match the film or even even surpass it. Last week talked about the the seminal sequel, arguably one of the greatest of all time, The Empire Strikes Back and how that movie really set the blueprint for the modern sequel formula that we still have in existence today, particularly when it comes to the middle chapter uh, in a film trilogy. Now today, I thought it would be fun and uh, inappropriate to return to 
what has largely been uh, uh, the bread and butter, if you will, for this particular podcast, and that is horror movies, specifically horror sequels. Now, uh, it, it sort of goes without saying, if you were to mention any any movie from the 1980s, even through the present day, 9 out of 10, there is going to be a, a sequel associated with any number uh, what might be considered classic uh, horror films. I mean, if you think of the Friday the 13th movies, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, of course, but, but even other films such as Texas Chainsaw Massacre and more recently Insidious or the Scream movies. Sequels are, for all intents and purposes, the bread and butter for the horror industry. They are largely associated with an original property, and, and in some cases they are, are, are pure cash grab. Now, there's nothing uh, necessarily wrong with, with a cash grab. That is the, uh, a, lot of, a lot of ways the model for, uh, for uh, uh, movie making, especially when it comes to this particular genre. Uh, but, but by no means are, are, you know, is every sequel to every horror film a winner, let alone a, uh, a a worthy successor to the original. Sometimes they are just there to cash in on an existing franchise and, and sort of hit the familiar nostalgia beats and then call it a, a day. But sort of looking at the, the landscape of, of why horror films uh, certainly generate a number of, of sequels, and in some cases, infinite numbers of sequels. I mean, I cite, of course, Halloween is a, is a prime example. The original film began in 1978, and the latest installment came out last year, and uh, God knows there will be more Halloween movies in the years to come. And I think it, it, it speaks to a... The, the enduring pop, uh, popularity of, of horror films. People enjoy being scared. It, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a human emotion, and, and it's, it's fun when you have it in a controlled setting. It's why we go into haunted houses or uh, fun houses, if you will. We, we like that sort of uh, magic trick, if you will. And, and horror films accomplish that. And, and sometimes you know, they have even more to say than to just offer scares they can offer a great uh, you know, window into the into the human psyche and kind of a an examination on on other themes and and stories that in any other context might be dull or, or tedious but in a in a horror movie you can really tackle controversial themes and, and create a compelling and engaging story that that brings audiences back for more and more and of course you know the, the one of the main reasons for sequels' uh, uh, regenerative qualities, shall we say, is horror films, largely speaking, cost very little to make. That doesn't mean they are you know, a cheaply made product, though there are, of course, examples uh, of that being the case. But most horror films can make back their, their, their budget, if you will, make back their money in very little time. If you've got a film that, say, costs... 18 million dollars and and it's released uh you know to a wide audience and it's a it's a well-made film it won't take long to recoup that budget and then some i mean i go again i cite the halloween movie as a 
perfect example of that. Here was a film that was made for just over $300,000 and then made over $70 million at the box office in 1978. I mean, it sort of, you know, go, stands to, uh, you know, stands to reason that you, you wouldn't want to keep making more of these. And certainly that has been part of the, the formula going back to really what I consider the uh the 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 granddaddy the the one that started it all for for horror sequels and frankly one of the films that uh that did it arguably the best and and really has not been matched in terms of overall quality and execution so before i uh before i uh, put these uh these films on the chopping block so uh, so to speak just uh, sort of start off with a quick preface this is by no means meant to be a comprehensive list. These are just sort of films that have been, uh, you know, kind of percolating in in my mind, and I think are are worthy uh, worthy of discussion when we talk about sequels to to many horror films. Because Lord knows, and and, and horror fans will will certainly uh, you know you may chime in with me on this, but. A lot of these uh, these sequels, you know, you think of Friday the Thirteenth or or even Nightmare on Elm Street, um, and, and some might even say the Halloween movies. The sequels have been sort of this uh, uh, example of diminishing returns, with with each uh, successive one becoming more outrageous and out and and thought provoking in the worst possible way with each successive issue. But there are there are a few uh, that that sort of rise uh, to the top of the pack and uh, that is that is certainly a a a tough feat with any sequel to any film be it horror or action or or drama but but particularly with with a horror film to have a sequel that not only matches both the 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 tone and quality of the original but in some cases can even surpass it i mean that's that's a that's a conversation i think worth having so that's really the 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 parameters in which i have structured today's show. Uh, some of these films, you, you know, you may agree with. If you don't, that's all. That's perfectly fine too. But this would be a great, good opportunity for uh, you, the listeners, to uh, chime in and let me know some of your favorite sequels to to horror films. Could be any film. Just what sequels do you think either stack up to the original, compare to the original, or in some cases might even surpass the original. Um, Looking over my my list, there is only one film in my estimation. Actually, I'll, I'll take that back. There are two that go as so far as is not only to match the original film, but but surpass it in, in the best possible way. And and that kind of I think that's a perfect way to to start. I, I hinted at it a moment ago about a sequel that, without question, in, in my view topped the original in every way imaginable and that is the bride of frankenstein frankenstein the original is a classic horror film boris karloff's creation of the monster everything about that film is perfect a lot of people will will say it's superior to 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 dracula even which is another classic that came out around the same time frankenstein connects i think with audiences on both an intellectual and an emotional level and in part because it's it's sort of a fun scary monster movie and it's really the first 
of its kind, and now it's you know, largely become cliched with with the sort of the hunchbacked assistant and the the gothic castles and the and the laboratory and the scientists with wiry hair. But all of that had to start somewhere, and, and Frank Frankenstein sort of taps into our our sort of curiosity about life and our potential to to create or, or destroy life and, and sort of becoming God. It sort of asks all these uh, these sort of higher level questions, if you will, and, and does it in the context of a, of a gothic horror story. So without question, the, you know, the first film just captured the imagination of audiences at the time. And because it was so successful, a sequel was inevitable. And you figure, you know, how are you going to top the original Frankenstein. Well, interestingly enough, the director, James Whale, famously refused to do a sequel to, to Frankenstein, feeling that he had accomplished what he wanted to, to do with the film. He had, he had honored the spirit of Mary Shelley's book, but, but there was nothing more to say. The monster would become more, would essentially become a one-trick pony. But the studio was, was insistent. Universal wanted to have a follow-up. It, it wanted to to put out a, a a sequel, and of course, you know, as, as often these stories go, uh, you know, the director was was given create more creative control than in the previous film, and so that got James Whale to thinking about what could he do with with this particular version of the story, because the the bride character is present in the original novel, not necessarily in the way that it's presented on film but but the character does appear in the first uh in, in in the original book so that was an element that they wanted to take and expand upon and, and adapt for for the second film so of course you know you take that initial concept you bring back Boris Karloff who was already a a worldwide superstar at this point for his role as as the monster in the original film and, and you've got a you, you've got a match made in heaven, so to speak. And what Bride of Frankenstein manages to to do is expand the canvas. And and at any time when you're doing a sequel, when when you can broaden the story in a way to something more than what was presented the first time, you're already in successful territory. At least I think so. And so with the Bride of Frankenstein. You've already got a larger canvas, both both in terms of, of sort of story location, but also with with the story itself. You, you have at the end of the first film uh, a kind of a, a full arc for the character of Frankenstein. This is a man determined and, and, and kind of obsessed to become a god and, and create life, only to realize that he has created his greatest. Uh, his greatest destructive force, and realizes the errors of, of his ways, and sets out to to destroy the monster. Now, of course, curiosity uh, always gets the better of him, and he sort of l- pulled back into this into this world of of mad science through the uh, the persuasion of an old colleague and and mentor, and so not only to to finish what what he started, but to in essence, create a a mate for the monster. Now, that could have been it. They could have just gone with a simple premise. All right, we're going to create you know a, a, the wife for the monster in all intents and purposes. But they go more. They go deeper than that. 
instead of the monster just being a a one note character there is a an element of, of frustrated or 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 fractured humanity that is sort of weaved into the into the character this time around and instead of it just being this this hulking brute you actually see this misunderstood and and frankly terrified creature that is trying to find its place in the world trying to find acceptance from from society and is getting none of it the the villagers in the fil- in the film uh, go after the monster and almost in, in a in a Christ-like fashion mount him to a cross. He's he's been burned from the previous film, and and all he wants is to make sense of of a world that 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 never wanted him. And there's this really touching moment at the end of the film because, interestingly, the 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 bride uh, character doesn't appear. Till pretty much the end of the film, anyway, and despite not having a lot of screen time, the character is is arguably just as famous and, and as as important as the Frankenstein monster in terms of movie history. But by the end of the film, the monster, thinking that that he has a friend, that he has a mate, is rejected by this very thing that that is just like him, a creation. And so it's this real tragic irony that despite this this hope to have a connection and have some kind of of of, of better life, none of that is ever possible. And it's it's really more of a tragic story than it is a than is it than it is a straight monster movie. I mean they could have leaned into just the the horror elements and and made it a, a mad scientist uh you know gone even madder kind of a premise but but they took the time to to craft a story that really really touches it kind of the the, the fractured soul in un, in all of us or the misunderstand uh, misunderstood sto- soul in all of us and kind of you know you can see you know humanity you can see you know yourself in the monster in some ways where you're just trying to make sense of the world you're just trying to 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 figure it all out and even in the character of of frankenstein Fra- frankenstein himself sort of realizing like oh you know maybe i can i can get it right this time i i can learn from my mistakes and of course that that never works out but but there's always that desire to try and 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 and, and do better and and improve improve on uh past flaws but they always of course come back to a uh, to bite you in the worst way sometimes worse than even imagined but all of that all those elements sort of tie into what i think makes this film so special, but also a, a worthy sequel, and, and arguably, I think, a better follow-up and, and a better film overall because it's 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 a lot more complica- complicated. It's more psychologically driven. We're 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 spending more time with these characters, and and even the monster. The monster is a is a central force in the film, even though in, in again, sort of a bold move the monster appears and then doesn't appear again till like 30 minutes or so uh into the middle part of the movie again that emphasis to sort of put in in the work on the characters and and their their situations i think made whatever you know weaknesses might have been there story wise or or character wise in the first film all go away because this is a very rich and, and deep film and i think kind of 
shows the the template, if you will, for what can be done with any sequel, but particularly with a with a with a horror film, is that you 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 don't want to just remake the, the the previous one. You don't want to have the hits from the first one. You want to have something deeper and have something more to say and take the characters in in new directions and, and explore them psychologically and kind of put them through the test to kind of tie into what I said last week with The Empire Strikes Back. Same kind of thing. You want to see the characters struggle. You don't want to see them as indestructible uh, people, you want to see them as, as flawed individuals that, that are trying to make sense of their world. And, and that is, that is very clear in this film. Even though it is a, a larger than life gothic horror film, the emotions are real and the characters feel real. And so therefore we're able to buy into the story. And, and, and I will go as far as say, I think this film is better than the original Frankenstein. It, it, it's able to, have a few more laughs in a way, not you know, sort of knock knock jokes or or, or, or big uh, laugh out loud moments, but 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 sort of moments of dry humor and and just sort of you know characters looking at the absurdity of of the situation, and then of course you have a much more complex and and psychologically driven performance by Boris Karloff as the monster, and and just. You know, we're, we're sort of, you know, we're, we're terrified and at the same time we understand the character. And that's a, a really interesting balance, especially when you're playing essentially the villain of the piece or, or in his case, the monster, to have that sympathy and, and really make the audience in some ways side in with the monster was was a bold decision, but I think one that ultimately paid off and, and made this film uh, you know, become the gold standard, if you will, for for horror films, so I kind of look at the Bride of Frankenstein as the as the template. If you're, if you're going to do a sequel to a horror film, particularly you know something with a lot of characters and and different narrative themes, that movie is the template that you want to use. Now, kind of go conversely, another film which, by all accounts, was probably deemed inferior. To, to the original, but has been reevaluated over the years, and I think now is viewed as as a as a superb sequel and, and a very underrated one. And that is Psycho Two. And I will just point out for all you uh, attentive listeners in the uh, in the audience, in Scream Six, the latest installment that came out back in March. There is a reference to uh, Psycho 2 made by the characters of of Kirby and Mindy, and they both, in unison, make the 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 point when talking about horror sequels that Psycho 2 is under is underrated. And I think you know, Psycho the original is a classic. I mean, that, that's an understatement to say it really is this sort of watershed moment for what a horror film could be in the 1960s and really carried through to the present day and it's 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 terrifying i mean i watched it recently and and it it holds up all these years later i mean goes without saying alfred hitchcock was was a master at his craft and 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 was able to 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 present a film that was both unnerving psychologically and then just straightforward horror i mean it was just it's 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 
it's a, it's another one of those films. It's in the same conversation as as Frankenstein, Dracula, Halloween. It, it's it's a it's a timeless horror film. And so to think that you were going to do a sequel to this film is quite a daunting task. And it didn't happen for about twenty years later. Uh, so it kind of gives you a, an idea of the time frame from the original film, which was around I think nineteen sixty or sixty two. Uh, to you know, twenty plus years later, having a follow-up sequel, and of course, yeah, there was a few others down the road. But Psycho Two picks up the threads from the original film twenty years later and presents Norman Bates, who is presumably cured from his from his his mental illness, but yet through sort of uh, exterior uh, events as well as his own uh, internal battle. His uh, his uh, his other side, shall we say, comes uh, comes uh, comes back, and uh, it's it's one of those movies where the first time that I watched it, I was like, oh, I I don't know because it doesn't have Alfred Hitchcock, so that's sort of you know a, a strike. I mean, again, Hitchcock is is the uh, is the master, and so a, a film without his signature on it kind of it, it doesn't feel right given how uh, how important the first film is but after giving it some time and then doing a rewatch i can understand why many people consider it to be an underrated uh, film because it, it's able to do tying in like what i said with with bride of frankenstein it takes the story in a new direction and puts the emphasis on the character's mental state and psychological actions and and reactions, it would have been very simple to have just played the you know similar the the familiar beats of of Psycho or done like what the actual remake did, which was recreate the film shot for shot. This movie attempts to a- attach itself to the original, but at the same time present it as a twenty year twenty plus year later story, and really go so far as to get inside the the head of of Norman Bates and the character of of Lila ultimately what we get from this film is not a a rehash of of Psycho because in a lot of ways the the film sort of goes out of its way to try and kind of provide a, a, a an interesting twist if you will at the end of the film and I won't spoil it for those who, who may not have have yet seen the film, but uh, it, it is sort of like a a surprise and you know the final real uh, act. But it, it it sort of works in the spirit of this film. We we really get to spend time with Norman Bates more so than in the original, and and kind of understand who he is on on a on a human level versus as just this archetypal uh, psychopath there's really an effort to try to get to the root of his character and, and what is what is the driving force behind him you know is, is it all uh, his uh, so-called mommy issues or is it a little uh, something deeper but uh, definitely worth checking out if you are a fan of the uh, of the original of the original uh, film because it, it, it again it doesn't necessarily match the original but it is it is what I would classify as an underrated film, uh, particularly an underrated horror film. 
and certainly Scream Six uh, hit the hit the nail or, or, or hit the knife on the head, so to speak, uh, with uh, their uh, with their uh, uh, you know kind of dissection of it in the uh, in the context of the film. And on that, actually, that's a perfect segue. On that idea of an underrated film, that brings me to Wes Craven's A New Nightmare, which this was the first Nightmare in Elm Street film to bring back Wes Craven since the third film. Uh, and in the first Nightmare film he had directed since the original. Wes Craven famously had a had a very fractured and, and, and uh tenuous relationship with the Freddy Krueger character and and the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, uh, producers and and, and production crew and and famously did not care for the original sequel, Freddy's Revenge. He thought it was inferior and just a pathetic attempt at a follow-up. He did return, however, to write what is considered by many to be the best sequel of, of the original Nightmare films, the Nightmare on Elm Street 3 the Dream Warrior movie, but he decided to to return, and this was after the, you know, they had done the, the the fifth installment, and decided to come back with what was called a new nightmare. And I mean, talk about a film that was truly ahead of its time. It, it was Scream before there was Scream, and what that I, what I mean by that is this was the first real attempt to do a a meta commentary on the horror genre particularly a long-standing slasher franchise like Nightmare on Elm Street and it's it's a very self referential film it it goes out of its way to sort of create a movie within a movie so you have the actors from the original film you have Heather Langenkamp you have Robert Unglund they're all playing sort of fictionalized versions of themselves as they have to go up against a a, a version of Freddy Krueger that has entered the uh, quote-unquote real world uh, of the 1990s. And it's, it, it, again, it was not well received at, at the time. A lot of critics and, and audiences didn't quite uh, get what they were going for. Now, flash forward two, uh, two years later to 19, 1996 and... You had the movie Scream, which completely revitalized the the slasher genre, it injected new uh, new energy, if you will, into the into the horror uh, horror franchises. And now, uh, Wes Craven's A New Nightmare is looked back as as one of the best sequels, I think, especially in the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, franchise. But but overall, in terms of what the movie set out to do, it was not a a oh let's bring back Freddy again kind of a movie it was a unique way to sort of have a movie within a movie to kind of present the actors uh, as versions of themselves fighting up against you know, Freddy Krueger it was, it was really it's very inventive and it's actually very terrifying this is I think the most frightening the Freddy Krueger character looks since the original film and I think that was a real effort that was also made on the part of the of this film, which was to go back to the the roots of the original film, where Freddy was this menacing, terrifying creature instead of just more of the 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 jokester that he had become throughout the uh, the, the later sequels. This was an attempt to make Freddy scary again, and, and it accomplished it without question, as well as delivering a, a real interesting commentary on the horror genre and a 
frankly, worthy follow-up to, to any of the Nightmare films, as far as I'm concerned. Now, I said at the top of the show, sequels in sequels to horror films are, are like bread and butter. They, they are part of the the industry. And if you have a successful successful film, even a modest successful film, you're almost guaranteed to have a, a sequel. I mean, just looking through the list. Friday the 13th, there were 12 films, including a remake. There's also a forthcoming TV show on the way. Uh, the Child's Play, Chucky movies, there's eight of them, plus a TV show. Freddy from Nightmare on Elm Street, he's got five, uh, he has nine. Evil Dead has five. Even Happy Death Day, a, a fun idea of a slasher done in the mold of Groundhog Day, has a sequel, as well as a, a possible third on the way. And as an aside, I, I will get to uh, some of these films, particularly Happy Death Day, uh, when I uh, when I when we enter Halloween time later this year, because that is one of my all time favorite original horror films of, of the last probably ten years. It is just it's funny, it's inventive, and, and there's some real genuine moments of of suspense and and terror. But you know, just sort of going through that list, sequels are are part of the uh, uh, part of the ingredients, if you will, when it when it comes to a horror film. I mean. I haven't said it, but I mean, everyone knows my feelings on uh, on Halloween. Michael himself is uh, still uh, still the king with thirteen movies uh, under his belt or under his mask, if you will, depending how you look at it. Uh, so they are they are part of the the conversation, and and certainly there was a debate, there was a discussion about are, are any of these films any good? And certainly, you know, it's always a debate on on taste and and, and quality, but. I have a great time with these movies. They're fun. They're, they're something uh, enjoyable about being scared. And particularly when you're going back to these, these 80s films, there's something special about the genre during that time because there were so many horror films. There were so many sequels that, that it really created the, uh, the, the modern genre and is still having an impact all the way to the present day. You know, Halloween being a perfect example of that. And so I thought of, you know, looking at many of the films that came out in the 1980s that were horror films, a lot of them were sequels. I mean, Friday the 13th was pretty much pumping out one every year or every other year. Same going with uh, Freddy. But interestingly enough, my, uh, my personal favorite, the, uh, the, the franchise that I, uh, that I hang my, uh, my hat on, Halloween, only had three films throughout the course of the 80s, despite being the, the, the transformative figure in the, in the genre and kind of setting the stage for the likes of Freddy and, and Jason and all the other imitators, there were only three Michael Myers sequels in the 80s. Now, four if you count Halloween 3, but that's, that's sort of in a special category uh, all of its own. And I'll have to do another retrospective on that film uh, once we get to, get to Halloween time. As, as well, but for you know, for for all the trends that uh, that that Michael and, and the Halloween franchise uh, started, there were only three entries in the uh, in, in in the eighties. One coming right at the beginning, and then two right at the close of the decade, kind of as the uh, as the the heyday was over. But kind of in looking back, as I said, to that to that era where the genre was really defined and in a lot of ways created, there is a film from the Halloween series, Halloween 2, 
which, again, by no means does it match or, or frankly, surpass the original film. But as far as a sequel goes, it's pretty darn good. I, I would put it in the Jaws 2 category and, and maybe even a step uh, higher than that because for what was a, a direct follow-up and, 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 and what, in doing something that was extremely rare at that time to have a sequel pick up moments before after the, the predecessor was a, a novel concept. And you know, only looking back, I think Frankenstein or the Bride of Frankenstein is, is the first you know, real pioneer of that. But now you know, in, the, in the slasher genre, it kind of became uh, commonplace throughout the 80s for each installment to pick up after the other. But Halloween 2 picks up right after the, uh, the events of the, of the first film and continues on with uh, with Halloween night 1978 and it's it's just it's a fun very 80s movie that that still manages to capture the the spirit and tone of the original now what do I mean it's a very 80s movie well it, it's no longer the bloodless theater of the mind film of uh, of Halloween 1978 it's definitely a product of its time where there's more gore than there is necessarily suspense and and thrills there there's more bl- uh, blood and, and gross out moments but it, it's all i mean very tame by today's standards uh, but it is it's all part of that that wild and and crazy ride that was 80 slashers and 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 halloween 2 i have a very special uh, uh soft spot for because it, it's one of those sequels where you know it's not going to ever surpass the original but it it does a great job at being an entertaining follow-up and and ultimately delivers a real satisfying conclusion to you know what was then supposed to be the end of the michael myers storyline but of course you know the rest is uh the rest is history uh and and on that that note of a of a part two kind of changing the game and and sort of having uh, impact on on future installments i would also put friday the 13th part two in that category because that is the movie that really made jason Voorhees the the figure that he is today or it, it made him the uh, the main part if you will the main the main boogeyman of the friday the 13th movies because the big misconception about the original film is that Jason is not the killer. It's, you know, spoiler alert, it's his mother doing it. And and that's something that, that was unique and, and, and novel for that uh, first film. But, of course, at the end of the uh, end of the first film, and, of course, spoiler alerts ahead, uh, Mrs. Voorhees gets her head cut off. So you're not going to have her uh, not going to have her coming back for a sequel. I mean, they didn't they didn't think about the Halloween resurrection <laughs> uh, angle, but. Friday the Thirteenth made Jason the the main antagonist of the series, and with only one exception, in the fifth installment, Jason has been the uh, the predominant uh, killer, if you will, throughout all of the Friday the Thirteenth. But uh, interestingly enough, he did not get his iconic hockey mask until the inevitable part three. So, uh, part two, uh, he was just running around with a. Uh, with a with a potato sack <laughs> over his head, but uh, I I would argue he was actually very frightening 
uh, in that in that particular one, especially when the uh, when the mask comes off. Uh, definitely, uh, definitely gave me some nightmares uh, the first time uh, I saw it. But no, I mean, th- those two films sort of are are, are standouts and 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 kind of interesting uh, chapters in their respective franchises because a lot of lore and sort of future uh, developments were were really established in in those two films. Friday with Jason being the killer in Halloween to establishing for the time Michael as as the brother of Laurie Strode and how that impacted the franchise for many many years so a lot of interesting decisions creatively were were made during those uh, those first early chapters and I mean just as as pure fun 80s horror films uh, y- y- you can't go wrong with them now just two more films to uh, to mention and cap off today's episode i mean this ep- this could have been a two hour episode i mean I, I had a huge list when i started this of countless sequels and and i sort of narrowed it down and narrowed it down and really wanted to get it all back to my my central premise which has been what makes a good sequel and and largely what i have found a a good sequel or, or a great sequel or, or a sequel that surpasses the original is not only going to take the story in in new and, and and sort of interesting directions not necessarily just for the sake of doing it but making sense with the characters and their motivations and then delivering something that isn't just a a repeat or a reheat if you will of of the previous entry but but sort of is worthy and, and stands on its own and so to start uh, with this, uh, these these final two, we're going to go all the way back to uh, to the 1940s to the the original crossover films so before before the countless superhero films, before Batman fought Superman, before Freddy fought Jason. There was Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, and this is by all accounts the first ever crossover between franchises. You had the Frankenstein monster. And you had the Wolfman, and and while this is not a uh, a spectacular sequel, I mean we're not getting the Bride of Frankenstein uh, to say the least with this movie. It is a real impressive accomplishment of bringing together two respective horror icons, and and doing so in a way that doesn't feel like a gimmick. It doesn't feel forced or something that's over the top. It's all in the context of the story, and it's not really the two characters, the Wolfman and the monster, fighting throughout the entire film. It's really in the only in the last probably ten or fifteen minutes that they actually have their their confrontation. And and for for a nineteen forties film, it's it's spectacular. It, it it really dazzles the mind. I remember the first time I watched this this movie on on video i was just blown away because just seeing the the monster and and the wolfman come face to face and then have this big showdown in a lab and then the the water was rushing in oh it was just it was incredible and and it was you know just food for the imagination but it it really is one of those films where it, it takes the concept of bringing characters from respective movies together and doing it in a way that doesn't necessarily feel Force. It doesn't feel like it's a like it's a joke or a gimmick. Certainly, it was a marketing 
coup to have both Frankenstein's monster and the Wolfman meet up. I mean, two of the big heavyweights of, of the horror genre at that time. Of course, it you know, made sense from a marketing standpoint, but there is an actual story there. And, and Lon Chaney gives a, a phenomenal performance as, 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 as the Wolfman. And it's really, it's really his movie versus, you know, much less so the monster. He, he's really driving the picture. We're invested in his story as he's trying to rid himself, if you will, of this, of this curse of the wolf. And like I said, it, it holds up. Even all these years later, it's it's a must-watch for me every single year during during the Halloween season, and it's just sort of fun to think that that was the original crossover. That was the you know the original Freddy versus Jason, and, and it it delivers. And I recommend to anyone if you are a fan of of the genre, particularly of the Universal horror films, this is a must-watch because it is it's amazing that the film exists and the fact that it existed. 70 plus years before Freddy and Jason squared off in the early 2000s just makes it all the more uh, interesting and, and impressive and kind of diminishes the uh, originality, if you will, of, of Freddy versus Jason. But um, that, that then brings me to when we talk about originality. And I have mentioned this particular film a number of times on on the show and I will certainly be mentioning it more in the future with the with the forthcoming final installment uh, soon to be released, and that is, I'm talking about Pearl. Pearl is one of those rare cases for me that the film is not only a great sequel, or in this case, it actually serves as a prequel to uh, Ty West X, but it also manages to be, in my view, a better film than the original because it follows those those familiar points that I have been mentioning throughout the last few shows about taking the characters in a new direction, really making it a psychological study and delivering for the audience something new and inventive. And with Pearl, I mean, this is, this is a character study inside of a horror film. I mean, it is an expose, if you will, into the character of Pearl, who we are first introduced to in X as this older woman who happens to have a, a psychotic edge. Now to go back and, and to tell the the backstory, it was really a bold a bold move because the third film is going to pick up from the threads of the first film a few years later. So when I first found out that there was a, a prequel, I was oh, I'm not sure how that's going to work because... You know, what more is there to say? And then there's always, of course, the risk of, of overexposing uh, a, a villain that sometimes a backstory can be detrimental. Not the case uh, with, uh, with Pearl. And this is a case where my faith, <laughs> my faith is in Ty West because he and, and, and Maya Goff created something really imaginative and, and frankly, terrifyingly beautiful with the character of Pearl. And... It, the sequel prequel goes much deeper in terms of getting into the psychology of this character, showing us who this person is, while offering interesting hints of where things are going to go vis-a-vis X. And it, it it just it works as a standalone film. It works as a as a sequel to to X, and it serves as a prequel. It, it, it's it's one of those rare cases where it sort of accomplishes 
everything that it sets out to do, and then some. Uh, and then some. And I know I've mentioned it in the past, but it, it has the endorsement, the ringing endorsement of of Martin Scorsese. And I mean, when, when you've got Martin Scorsese singing your praises, particularly uh, for a for a horror film, I think that speaks absolute volume. So I, I will say it again here: if you have not watched Pearl, even if you're not a fan of the genre or or slasher films, even though this I would say is more uh, tame, if you will, in that in that area. This is something to watch from just a performance standpoint because Maya Goth takes a character that we are introduced to in the first film and she's terrifying, she's creepy, but she's older and then is able to sort of reverse engineer and and show us who this person was 40, 50 years earlier and make it both fresh and at the same time familiar was just an amazing accomplishment uh, on top of being a well-told and and well-made movie that sort of feels like a great throwback to uh, the 1950s and and early 60s big-budget MGM musical uh, Technicolor uh, marvels that just happens to also be about a a crazed uh, crazed psychotic person who's uh, looking for revenge in in every possible uh, encounter. But... There we go. Those uh, those are the sequels that sort of fit into my uh, into my, uh, my 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 purview, if you will, of, of films that manage to not always uh, surpass the original, but can be good in their own right and, and deliver something worthy. Particularly when it comes to uh, a, a horror franchise, where you know sometimes they just sort of are there for the sake of being there. But it, it, it says something when these films can go above and beyond what came before. And, you know, I, I, I didn't get to, to, uh, to talk about Scream and, 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 the, and the Scream sequels, but I, I really wanted to save those for a, a special episode because, I mean, it is worthy of doing an entire, uh, an entire episode dedicated to the sequels because Scream is one of those instances where you have a horror franchise that we don't, for all intents and purposes, has never had a bad sequel or, or a mediocre sequel. You know, people have their favorites, and certainly the, orig- the original is a, a classic in its own right, but each sequel has at least managed to stick the landing, uh, for better or for worse. So, uh, you know, fear not, I will, be, uh, I will be returning to Woodsboro in the near future. But uh, just, you know, for, uh, for the record, I wanted to save those films for, for a full-length episode because I really think there's there's a lot to, to unpack and and dissect, if you will, uh, with, with each of those uh, ghost face outings. But in any event, that that concludes my uh, my uh, my sequel discussion, if you will. Next week, going to be a uh, more topical with the uh, with the release of the Flash, so you will be getting my. Uh, my full uh, my thoughts and and feelings on this film. Uh, I'll, I'll try to keep it. Uh, I'll try to keep it concise. <laughs> no no promises, but uh, that'll be on the docket for uh, next week. As always, want to thank you for tuning in and hearing what I have to say on movies. I'll give a breakdown or a list, if you will, of each sequel that I mentioned in today's discussion. All that'll be in the show notes uh, along with the uh, with the links that I mentioned at the start of today's show. But for now, that's all. I'll be back next week, and we'll do this all over again for the love of movies. <laughs>